I don't want to leave an experience from last week without another comment. We, we hosted what we called the sold experience last week. Remember, it was an eyes wide open uh, encounter with the scourge of human trafficking. 336 million people around the world that are, are uh, enslaved in slavery against their wishes. Uh, I wonder how many of you had a chance to go through the sold exhibit last week. Well, if you did, you were in good uh, company. We had over 660 people who, who went through that. And kudos to uh, Beth Burgess and the rest of the mission team for helping us to be aware of this situation and, uh, and to do something about it. I wanted to share with you, though, a, a very powerful story that came out of this that I think you'll, well, I hope you'll find it as astounding as I did. On Thursday night, when everyone showed, to set, showed up to set up uh, the, uh, the presentation, set, set up all the various rooms, one of the things that they do is they, ha- they print out pictures of children from the local area who have gone missing. You've seen their pictures. Have you seen? Have you seen? Have you seen? I mean, it's really one of the most tragic and plaintive things that you can look at, these, these seven, eight, 15-year-old kids that have suddenly gone missing, and many of them lured into the sex trade. So they printed out and, and, and then pasted up on the walls of one of the display rooms the pictures of these local children. One of the women who was a volunteer that night took a picture of that display and posted it on Facebook. Within 24 hours, one of the young girls, a 15-year-old girl who had been missing for 18 months, had been found as a result of that. Isn't that awesome? The, the story is not finished yet. She is now uh, 18, so it would be a little longer than that. She's now 18. She's, she's pregnant. She's still on the streets. So there's a, a, a long journey yet ahead for her. But for the first time in all of those months, a year, a year and a half, her parents have actually spoken to her. They know she's alive. And so there is hope. Hope still lives. And if there's anything that we've discovered in our journey through the, the story in this, this last year, uh, that it, it is this, that there are times when it looks so bleak, so despairing, so hopeless, right? And it is precisely in those moments when we are reminded that God is still in control, the Holy Spirit, Spirit is still at work, and hope is still very much alive, even in the face of death. And, and certainly, if nothing else comes from this event, then this great possibility of hope, uh, then I think it was, it was well worth it, don't you? Next weekend, we will be studying together from the book of Revelation, the last book of the, of the Bible. Can you believe it? I mean, we are almost to the end of this year-long journey through this abridged version of the Bible that we call the the story. So next week it will be Revelation. And with the exception of a couple of chapters, when you come to Revelation, you are, of course, looking to the future. You are looking at a a very uh, picturesque and vivid image of the return of the triumphant Christ in victory as he promised he would return. That being the case, that means that today, this uh, version, this chapter of the story is the last time we will be in the historical portion of the scripture. That is that which has already occurred. And we come to this portion of the story at the end of the book of Acts. And there we find uh, the apostle Paul in, uh, in, in prison. Uh, he has been to Jerusalem, he's been arrested, he's been transported uh, to a house arrest in Rome, and, in, and he is awaiting the most remarkable opportunity. He wants to make his appeal to Caesar. 
And do you remember who the Caesar was on the throne at the time that Paul was waiting to speak to him? Yes, a guy named Nero. Paul is waiting to speak to Emperor Nero about why he believes that a man named Jesus from Nazareth was raised from the dead and is in fact the only God, not Nero, not any other Roman emperor. He is the, he is the only true God. So Paul is waiting for this moment to stand before the emperor. In the meantime, he sits in a house arrest, under house arrest, between, chained between two guards likely, but in very pleasant circumstances, able to take visitors. And one of the things he did while he was under house arrest in Rome near the book end of Acts is he wrote four letters that we know as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the four traditional prison epistles. And we know that at least from the book of Philippians, Paul, as he's writing to his friends in these various churches, he believes that his days are, are numbered. He thinks that his own death is imminent, and so he is, he's writing uh, these words to his friends out of this conviction that, that he, any moment, is going to be uh, carried off and, and, uh, and beheaded. But it turns out the Holy Spirit wasn't done with Paul. This was about 60 AD, but uh, somehow in his presentation to Nero, Nero is persuaded the Holy Spirit causes Paul to be released. And so he makes another uh, another missionary journey, one that we don't have record of in the Bible. We have three. He makes a fourth missionary journey, perhaps going as far west as Spain, which he told the Romans he wanted to do. But Paul being Paul, he got himself in trouble again. And about five years later, he was rearrested. He was returned to Rome. And this time, it wasn't cushy house arrest for him. He was put into the Mamertine prison. This is a picture of the outside of the Mamertine prison. It looks out over the forum, the Roman forum, ancient Rome headquarters. And uh, I've been in the Mamertine. It is a dark and gloomy and cold and foreboding place. The Mamertine prison was the dungeon of the condemned. It is believed, in fact, that Peter, the apostle Peter, was held here as well before he was executed. And Peter was executed by crucifixion. But when it came time for him to be executed, tradition has it that Peter did not count himself worthy to be executed in the same fashion as his Lord, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. In fact, if you could go back one slide, please, Brandon, go back one slide. You'll see there on the, the altar, do you see the cross? That's the upside down cross that reminds us of Peter who stayed there before he went to die for the Lord. It is possible since Peter and Paul both died about the same time, it is possible that they were actually in this dungeon, in this prison together, if you can imagine. And, uh, but the difference is this, Paul was a Roman citizen. And so it was against the law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was also against the law for a Roman citizen to be flogged, but that didn't stop him five times to, from flogging Paul. But uh, Paul, so Paul did not have a cross waiting for him. He had a swordsman's sword waiting for him. He was going to be beheaded. And as I said, we don't have any biblical account of this last moment of Paul's life because the, 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 the moments that we find recounted in the last part of Acts actually turn out to be five years before the, his final time in prison leading up to his death. So we don't have an account of that, but what we do have, and I don't know if you're aware of this, was Paul's final last words and testimony. Uh, we have written from Paul, from Paul's hands, the last words that were written when he was in the Mamertine prison. Did you know that? 
And we find them in a, a letter that he wrote to his young protege, Timothy. Second Timothy 4, Second Timothy, the book of Second Timothy, was written by Paul in the Mamertine prison prior to his execution. And so really, even though we have four what are known as prison epistles, we've got five prison epistles. And 2 Timothy is the last of the five. And uh, I find this to be some of the most powerful and compelling words that Paul ever wrote, especially given the circumstances. A man who has lived his life in Christ for 35 years, he's facing death, and he is doing so with such nobility. And so I, I, found, I find his words in this letter to be words to both to live for and to die by. And, uh, and on this day, when we are remembering those who laid down their lives in service of something greater to, than themselves, I want to invite us to turn now to the last words of the great apostle who laid down his life for certainly for something greater than himself. So if you care to, turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's all the T's in the New Testament are together in alphabetical order. So you can find it, if you find a T, you're close. 2 Timothy 4, you'll find it on page 1006 in your Bible. Beginning with verse 6. Paul writes these words. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these inspiring words from this faithful man. God, will they call us by your spirit to something greater for ourselves that we might be able to say and have said of us the same things that Paul had said of him. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, the Mamertine was not a very pleasant place to spend your last days, especially if you were an old man who had endured all that Paul had endured. 
And so as you're reading through this, I hope you sense with the pathos of it and the, and the, 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 the conflicts, the, the, there's a, a sense of, of emotion about these, these words. And I, and I thought it would be good for us just to try to imagine what was going on in Paul's mind. First of all, it is obvious that he knows that his days are numbered, isn't it? Verse 6 says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. We know this wasn't the first time that Paul faced death. Isn't that right? I mean, we talked about it last week. The many times that he faced death. He was stoned. He was flogged five times, beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked, snake bit. I mean, the guy really went through it. So it's not like he was a a stranger to, to the possibility of death and privation and suffering. As a matter of fact, as you read in this next chapter, you'll discover that near the end of his ministry in Acts, he is arrested in, in, in Jerusalem, and the, the, the Roman guards, along with a, a cavalry unit, have to uh, take him, secret him, to uh, the, the port city of Caesarea by night, because there was a group of assassins who had decided that they were going to kill him. In fact, they pledged that they were not going to eat another meal until Paul was dead. Well, he didn't die for another seven or eight years, so I, I, I suspect they got pretty hungry. The Lord wasn't quite done with them yet. So, like I said, Paul had faced death before, but this time it's the real deal. This time he knows that his, his death is at hand. And one of the things that strikes me about this passage is he's lonely. You hear that? Verse 16 is really very, very sad. He writes, at my first defense, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. Think of that. This man who has walked 14,000 miles in the course of his ministry, who has poured himself out in service and love, who has discipled and raised up and mentored and, and taken blows for others. When his time came, when he stood there before Nero, he said, no one came to my defense. Everyone deserted me. Have you ever been deserted? Have you ever gone through a time of abandonment? Where the, the person that you thought, the persons that you thought would stand by you, left you high and dry? If you have, then you have a, some sense of what Paul is feeling here. And he names names. You know, this guy Demas, I don't know what. And Alexander, the man, the, the metal worker, he does not come down well in history to us, does he? They, they, and they, even the others, Titus and Tychicus and Crescens, we are told, they left. And it sounds like Paul sent them on their way. They had ministry to do, and so he sent them along. But nevertheless, it meant that in this time, in his final days, he was lonely. In fact, there was only one who remained behind with him. Who was that? Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke, the one who's writing the book of Acts. He remained behind. And so Paul says to his dear young protege, would you come? In fact, he says, come quickly. In fact, near the end, I didn't read this part. He said, come before winter. Here's you've got a spiritual dad giving advice to a spiritual son. Uh, he, he says, I, I want you to come before the roads get dangerous. You know, have you ever heard that? Don't, I don't want you driving in the wintertime. You know, come before winter. I want you here safe and sound. Would you come to me? So Paul is lonely, and there's something else. He's cold. This is a wonderful historical little tidbit. But he said, when you come, would you please go to my friend in Troas and get that cloak of mine? He was supposed to have returned it a long time ago. I'm waiting on FedEx and it still hasn't come. And my blood is thin and it is cold in this dungeon. So would you please go to Carpus, get my cloak and bring it with you. 
So we have these wonderful, vivid little pieces of Paul's life. He is facing death. He feels abandoned and lonely. He is freezing cold. And in the midst of all of this, he looks back over what would now be about 35 years of walking with Christ. And he pronounces this wonderful, hopeful, powerful, inspirational assessment of his life. You know it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Say it with me. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. You know I've said this before, but my wife knows that this is the text that I want engraved on my tombstone. And I pray that my life in the end will be found worthy of this noble epitaph. Paul makes three assertions about his life. First of all, he said, I fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. You know, today we're, we're talking about these young men and women mostly who laid down their lives in, in noble battles for, for great world-impacting causes. But it doesn't take very long to live in this world before you realize, as a matter of fact, life is a battle. Isn't it? Life is a fight. Now, there are sweet times. There are Edenic, peaceful, ironic times. But life is a battle that needs to be fought if you're going to live well. I, some months ago, I heard from one of our staff members with the terrible news that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And so she began the journey that so many of you have begun. Uh, that fearful and debilitating and exhausting uh, and, you know, journey of, of chemotherapy and treatment. But one of the things that I really respected about Patty was the way she continued to fight through all of that. She bought herself a beautiful wig and she started wearing it because her hair fell out. And on the days that she didn't feel wiggy, she had a very fetching baseball cap that she wore. And she just kept coming. She showed up for work. She kept working at it. Maybe her step was one little bit slower than than normal, but I never heard her complain. I heard her afraid but I never heard her complain. This is where she was, and she was going to fight. And so we prayed, and she fought. And by the way, this Thursday, I got the most wonderful email from Patty. She said, I went to my doctor, and I am cancer-free. Isn't that great news? So that is a... Hallelujah. But Patty calls us to keep fighting. Paul says, keep on fighting. And there's a certain kind of a fight that he wants us to fight. Did you see? What is it? What's the fight? The good fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. What does that mean? That you don't give up? Yeah, maybe. Does it mean that you don't fight dirty when others do? How tempting is that? When you're being beset by those who are dirty fighters, liars, who are, who are trying to do your dirt, how tempting is it to resort to the same, same kind of tactics? And Paul says, nope, nope, nope. Or maybe when he says the good fight, he says there are some causes that are noble and sacred and worthy of fighting. And I want you to fight those good causes. One of the things I appreciated about the sold event was we came out of there not just being horrified or astounded or angry. There was things that we could do about it. We could take a swipe at this scourge. Do you think it matters to God? Do you think that that abolishing slavery in the world is a good fight in the sight of the Lord? I certainly do. This last week, I, I went and visited uh, Peninsula Fish Food Bank. This, uh, this organization, I had a chance to meet with, uh, with the Coens, the founders of Fish. And, 
I was so impressed. By the way, I ran into six Chapel Hill volunteers when I was there. They came in. I was so proud. I was proud. But I was also impressed with the, the, they, these, these lovers of Christ. They are dear Christians. And they've decided that this is where they're going to pour their energy. They are faithful, a witness to Christ, providing food and providing kindness and providing dignity to those who live in the shadows of prosperous Gig Harbor. I mean, the image we have of Gig Harbor doesn't speak to need, to privation, to hunger and and poverty, but it's here. And there they are with very few resources and in in, uh, limited um, facilities. They are fighting a good fight against the forces of poverty and humiliation. That's a good fight. It does make me want to ask this question of myself and of you. What is the good fight to which God has called you? What is the good and noble and sacred fight to which God has called you? And are you engaged in it? What is the good fight that you've been called to do, but you are afraid, and so you have backed away? Paul says, I fought the good fight. That's a, that's a word of courage. I have fought the good fight. That's a word of courage. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That's the word of endurance. You know, the, the race really doesn't very, matter very much if you don't finish it. It's not very impressive if you're out of, the, out of the blocks fast, if you run the first lap really quickly, if you make it through the, the first third or the first quarter or the first three quarters of a race. If you're nine-tenths through the race and you're in the lead, it doesn't matter if you don't cross the finish line. And as a matter of fact, not just crossing the finish line, you want to cross it well, don't you? You want to cross having utterly spent yourself, given yourself to this enterprise that you thought it was worth starting in the first place. You finish the race, giving everything you've got to it. There, I think, is something powerful about the way that Paul illustrates that in his own life. When he was writing later on, one of the things he asked Timothy to bring, did you see it, are his books... And his parchments. Now think about that. He has just told Timothy, I'm about to die. My death is imminent. I can almost hear the footsteps of my executioner. And yet, he says, would you bring my books and my parchments? Why? Because he's not gone yet. And until he is gone, he is going to keep doing what he does. He's going to study. He's going to write. You realize that most of the New Testament that we have started as a parchment of Paul. Aren't you glad that he didn't stop writing? And so Paul continues on. He is not going to give up. He's going to write and study and care for the churches and mentor his spiritual children that, that the Lord has given him. Paul was going to live until he died. He would finish the race. Last year, a, a racer named Tanji Pepio, who's a, a runner for the University of Oregon, he had a huge lead in a race, and, and they had all but crowned him as the victor of this, and he knew it, and then this happened. Take a look. Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanji Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance, and at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can't. And you, know, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. He will never make that mistake again. I can assure you that's the case. But as a matter of fact, I've known too many people who made that mistake, who begin to coast in life. I have a pastor friend who served one church for nearly 30 years in really quite a noble way. Grew the church, had a great ministry. 
But in the final months of, of his ministry there, he got crossways and began to find it hard to take advice and to listen and to be collegial in his approach. And in the end, his three-decade ministry ended in bitterness and rancor, and it still haunts the church to this day. It is tragic. It is a cautionary tale to your pastor of the importance of finishing the race well. You're not done until you're done. You're not done until you're done in ministry, in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your schoolwork, in your relationship. Finish the race. Don't take the foot off the gas pedal. Keep going. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't work or serve or lead in a lackadaisical fashion. Run hard until the end. Why? Because whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's why all that we do is meant to be honor and worship to the Lord. And so we finish the race well. I have fought the good fight. That's courage. I have finished the race. That's endurance. And finally, I have kept the faith. And this is the word of integrity, I think. It's not enough to fight hard. It's not enough to fight enduringly. In the end, if you toss aside the beliefs, the values, the core convictions for which you ran and fought and endured so nobly, what difference does it make? This is a call to finish life with integrity, to live in faithfulness to the end, to not give up the things that grounded us in the first place. In other words, you must Continue to the last breath to walk your talk. You must continue to live in the dark the way that you live in the light. That it should be in alignment. That's what integrity looks like. And I think I see a hint of this for Paul who continued to live integrity, continued to be shaped and molded by the Holy Spirit. There's a wonderful little snippet that takes place in verse 11. I wonder if you saw it. He he writes to Timothy, get Mark and bring him to you because he is useful to me in my ministry. By the way, these are the words that Cindy once engraved on her tombstone. (laughs) Get Mark and bring him to me. He is useful to me. Do you know who this Mark is that he's talking about? Remember last week we talked about a kid named John Mark who was on that first missionary journey and on the port city of Perga he abandoned them? For some reason we don't know, we read that he returned home back to Jerusalem. Now this caused a real kerfuffle between Paul and Barnabas. In fact, when they came around to the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another shot. And you would expect that from the son of encouragement, wouldn't you? You'd also expect it because, well, John Mark was his nephew, and I think Barnabas didn't want to deal with his sister's, you know, whatever. He said, you've got to take the boy. Give him another chance. Paul says, there's no way I'm taking this kid. He bailed out on us, and I'm not going to have a thing to do with him. And in fact, it became such a point of division between Paul and Barnabas that we never read in the New Testament of Paul and Barnabas laboring together again. It's kind of sad. And yet, now we come to this moment where, where Paul says of a kid that he once thought to be useless, he has now become useful to my ministry. And I would say useful indeed, because you know who this John Mark is? 
He was the one who wrote what became the first of what we call gospels, of the four gospels. His gospel was the gospel of Mark. That's the Mark that he thought had become useful. And kudos to Paul, who went, who didn't stick to his stubborn opinion, who, who was unwilling to allow this kid to change and to grow. There's a, an integrity to this man that in the end, he was still allowing the Spirit to shape him, to change him, and maybe to allow him to say, you know what, I was wrong. Why? Because he was living out with integrity the very message, the second chance message that he had been preaching for 35 years, this redemptive second chance message that he talked about being offered from Jesus. So I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Who doesn't want that written on their tombstone? But here's the deal. It won't happen because you fight hard, you grit your teeth, you endure, you try to be really good. The reason you will be able to have these things said of you is only if you can have what Paul said occurred with him. Later in the verse he says, But the Lord stood at my side, and he gave me strength. Verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. How is it that Paul lived this life of courageous, enduring integrity? Because the Lord stood with him. Because the Holy Spirit lived in him. Because he gave him strength. He rescued him from evil. And obviously when Paul writes this, he's not saying he saved me from any persecution or suffering. We know that wasn't the case. Obviously it doesn't mean that he saved him from, ever, from facing death at the hands of his persecutors. Because we know that was also what happened. What Paul means is that the God of the resurrected Jesus could be trusted to bear him through this life of trial and into his heavenly kingdom safely. And it was the Holy Spirit that would help Paul to live his life in this way. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, courage, endurance, integrity. I'm not kidding. This is what I hope will be carved on my gravestone. And of course, my supreme hope is that no one who knew me well will snicker when they read those words. But isn't that the case? I mean, we don't want just platitudes written on there. Isn't it the case that for, for those of us who are closer to the end of our life than at the beginning, don't you long for the same thing? For those who know you best to be able to read those kind of words and nod in affirmation. Yes, this was a person of integrity and courage and endurance. Yes. But for those who are younger, for those who are closer to birth than, than death, honestly, reading words like this might seem like a misty future. Do you remember when it was the case for you, when you were immortal, you would never die, you would never have any... Remember those times? Yeah. But to those of you who are on the younger end of our spectrum, I would say you don't know how many days you have left. You have no idea how many days the Lord has given you on this earth. The 18-year-olds who died on the beaches of Normandy, or in the jungles of Vietnam, or in the deserts of Afghanistan, they never imagined at 16 that their lives would be cut so short. Or those who were killed in the streets of Paris, or those who were killed in the streets of Istanbul, they never imagined that their life would be cut short so quickly. The only way to ensure that you fight for the right things and you learn to endure and live with integrity is to begin now. 
Not to lay it, wait, not to put it off, not to sow your wild oats. It is to begin now by allowing the Spirit of Jesus to make you into the kind of person, starting right now, that you want to be said of in your last days, when you've breathed your last breath. Because sometimes, some days don't come. Sometimes, some days don't come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us to live lives like this? Would you help us to take a very cold, calculating look at where we are, whether we are living lives of courage, whether we are living lives of uh, endurance, whether we are living lives of integrity, and in those areas where we must be convicted, must be different, God, would you change us by your power, by your Spirit, make us more like Jesus, that these words might be spoken of us someday. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.